Amen. Thanks for all the beautiful music to help us to worship the Lord together this morning. And uh, really encourage us to really think through the, the doctrinal truth that is wrapped into some of these very treasured Christmas hymns that we enjoy uh, around this time of year and give special focus to some truths that are relevant year-round, right? It's not just important in December that we think that Jesus came as a baby, and that uh, is important for us uh, 12 months out of the year for us. I threw out a word at the uh, time we were reading the Scripture that maybe isn't a familiar word to you. I used the word incarnation. Uh, Incarnate, uh, the idea of becoming flesh. you're incarnate, okay? We all have physical bodies here today in that way. But when we talk about this doctrinally referring to Jesus Christ, uh, what do we mean by that? What is the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Well, what we mean is that we recognize that Jesus is fundamentally first the Son of God. So he is deity. He is divine. And as God, he didn't change from being God into being man. He, as God, took on humanity. Okay, and I'm using my words very carefully here today because if we're we're not careful, we can easily get into some uh, wrong teaching theologically and get off in the weeds here. Uh, there, there's many, for the one truth that there is, there's a myriad of different falsehoods out there that kind of go one way or the other with regard to uh, this point with regard to teaching about Jesus. We know in the book of John, the Gospel of John chapter 1, that John refers to Jesus Christ as the Word with a capital W. And in verse 14 it says, And the Word was made, do you know the next word? Flesh. The Word was made flesh. Jesus was made flesh and dwelt among us. In a manner of speaking, we could say the Son of God became Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus of Nazareth has not always been, but the Son of God has always been. The Son of God remains in His full deity while taking on humanity. Uh, Jesus wasn't 50% God while he was walking around in his earthly ministry and 50% man. Uh, He was 100% God. He was 100% man. And yet Jesus, in his complete humanity, was different than you and I and all other human beings that have ever lived or ever will live in one respect. And a very important one is he had minus a sin nature. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that Jesus knew, K-N-E-W, knew no sin. And that was very important because, as it goes on to say, He actually became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. So up to the cross... There was no, no, no sin in Jesus Christ. And there was never any sinful activity or sinful thoughts of his own accord. But this pure Lamb of God on the cross, the Bible tells us that he became sinful because of our sins. 
He became sin for us. Wow, what a thought to really ponder. As we often come when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, you know, we, we kind of think about the, the anguish of the crown of thorns, the spear in the side, you know, because that's the way we think of that would be horrible, and it, and it was. I'm not minimizing the torturous aspects of the crucifixion. But mindful that Jesus is completely God hanging on that cross and how much God is averse to sin. And then to say that, that he became sin, is it too much to say that that had to be the most excruciating part of the crucifixion for Jesus Christ was to become sin for us? That that far eclipsed the, the spear in the side, the crown of thorns, the whipping? I would say it had to be. We need to really understand uh, the weight of what our sin has done to our God. Our text that we looked at today is speaking largely, and I'm thinking specifically of Galatians 4 and verse 4, about the timing. Uh, The Bible reminds us that God's very precise in His timing. He's very precise in His timing. And so He was very precise in the timing of the incarnation when Jesus actually took on human form. Individuals have been, had been anticipating the arrival of the Christ. And when I use the term the Christ, that's another way of saying the Messiah. Christ means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, uh, the, the idea of Messiah was also the anointed one. Been, they didn't know his name was going to be Jesus, But they were looking for this anointed one. They were looking for this Messiah. How long had they been looking? Ever since the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.15, we're told that uh, the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, which was a prophetic utterance, a prophetic reference to what Jesus would do on the cross when he would give that lethal blow by his act of atonement, robbing Satan of his hopeful victory over humanity by saying, I am going to redeem my sheep to myself. And, And that's what happens. And so there was, in some sense, ever since Adam and Eve first sinned, there was an anticipation that God was going to send the anointed one So what is the prophetic? We're going to take the next four Sundays and we're going to talk about the uh, significance of the uh, incarnation of Jesus Christ. There's Genesis 3.15. The prophetic importance today is what we want to consider of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're going to first of all look at numerous passages of Scripture mentioned in the Old Testament that point to the truth that Jesus would, or the Messiah, or the Christ would, come into the world, okay? There's many, many more prophecies about the Messiah. We're interested in those that particularly talk about his infancy and coming into the world as a baby. And then to see how every single one of those are fulfilled specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to secondly look at 
why that's important to us today. Why it's more than just, uh, wow, that's a really neat thing that you showed us today, Pastor, but what's the takeaway for us? So, first of all, we need to understand that only Jesus has completely fulfilled the prophecies concerning the Christ. No one else. No one else but Jesus of Nazareth, the baby born in that manger in Bethlehem, only he completely fulfills those prophecies. I'm going to go through some of these kind of rapidly because there's many of them because this is really just to lay the foundation for the second part this morning. But I want us to see these. And if you're taking notes, you might want to jot down the references, but I'm going to put up the, the, the text and the references as well. So what is one of the first ones, the one of the first prophecies concerning the incarnation about Jesus Christ? And it would be this, that Christ would be someday filled with power and peace and the Spirit from His birth. That, that the, the Messiah, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be this individual that has the special anointing of the Spirit of God. Herein is the tri, triunity of God, right? We have God the Son in the manger, God the Father who has sent Him, and the Spirit of God who is upon Him. Over and over again, this is why we are Trinitarian in our doctrine here, because the Bible is Trinitarian in, in what it teaches. Isaiah 61, verse 1, tells us that the Christ would have a Spirit-anointed ministry. So even long, hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, uh, the prophet Isaiah said that the, uh, of the Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And th this is as if the Messiah himself is saying this. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings. And he goes on to say, Unto the meek he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. This was prophetic. So anybody that believed in the Messiah in the Old Testament was looking for them, was looking for someone that this would be true of. And among all the things that are said here, notice it started off with the Spirit of the Lord being specially anointed upon them. Does Jesus fulfill this? We know that he does. Because Jesus exemplified a Spirit-anointed ministry, and he announced it in the synagogue of Nazareth when he returned home to preach as an adult. Unfortunately, we know that they didn't receive him very well, but he stood up in the synagogue. He asked for the scroll of Isaiah. He read it, and then this is what he read in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he goes on from there. Well, we know that, they, that the people understood it because they didn't accept him that day as the anointed one, as Messiah, and so, therefore, their only conclusion was, this must be blasphemy. You know, isn't this the carpenter's son? And if you remember, they tried to assassinate Jesus by carrying him out of town and throwing him off of a cliff. But Jesus was not bashful. He was very pronounced in identifying, yes, this is true of me. And you have only to read through the gospel to find out that Jesus, from the very beginning, had a spirit-anointed ministry. So, he checks the box on prophecy number one. We know also that Christ would be born of a virgin. A very, very, very key prophecy here. Uh, this does not mean that he was just born of a young maiden. 
as one of our Sunday school teachers pointed out in the first hour. Isaiah 7.14. This was a sign. So obviously it was miraculous. If it was just a young maiden, that's no sign because young maidens gave birth all the time. But he says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, even young Mary is a little stupefied when she's told that, that she's going to give birth because she knew she was, a, she was a virgin. She had not been with a man. How can these things be? And, of course, the angel tells her that that which is conceived in her was of what? The Holy Ghost. That's right. Matthew 1, 23. And she's even reminded, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ came through a very unique, miraculous form of birth. That's one of the reasons why it's always under attack by the liberals. Uh, They don't let this rest. They try to sometimes minimize the miraculousness of what uh, happened for Jesus by sometimes elevating Mary in teachings like the Immaculate Conception, which is nowhere taught in the Scriptures, but is just contrived by human imagination. So prophecy number two, Jesus checks the box. He is born of a virgin. How about number three? Christ would be born in Bethlehem. We know that in Micah 5, 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth hath been from of old, from everlasting. Say, well, there might have been other rulers. Wasn't Bethlehem the city of David? Wasn't David a ruler? Yes, But what we can't say of David's rule is that his goings forth were not of everlasting. It has to be messianic. Well, let's see. What about Jesus? I thought he was from Nazareth. That's what the people of Nazareth even thought, right? Because that's where he grew up. But it was not his birthplace. As we know from Matthew chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, Herod sent the Magi, them, to Bethlehem. Why? Because he had counseled with his own wise men that were learned in the scriptures. And they immediately went back to Micah 5 2. They, they knew this. They knew the scriptures about the anointed one, about the Christ. And so in verse 11 it says, And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. Who, who is it that they're worshiping? They're worshiping Jesus. And so again, Jesus is in the birthplace. And we know that Jesus also has an everlasting kingdom to come as well. And so prophecy number three, Jesus checks the box. Prophecy number four, Christ would be called to escape to Egypt. Interestingly enough, how God uses even the wickedness of man's actions to show how sovereign he is, bringing about the fulfillment of his own word. This was not in the heart of Herod. Well, I need to fulfill God's prophecies. No, he had nothing but personal jealousy in his heart. But God knew and anticipated what Herod would do. 
And, and so this was all involved in the repositioning of Jesus for a period of time. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 actually tells us this. When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and then called my son out of Egypt. We know that there is an initial prophesying of this being fulfilled when he pulls the Hebrews out of Egypt uh, from that bondage and slavery. But we also know that this is what we call the law of double fulfillment and prophecy, that that was sort of a pre-type of what was going to point to Jesus Christ. In other words, all of the Hebrews coming out of Egypt and going to the promised land was, was going to eventually point to Jesus spending some time in Egypt himself and coming back into the land of Canaan himself. Matthew 2.19 tells us that when Herod was dead, that behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead, which sought the young child's life. Just a point of clarification is that the prophecy wasn't that Jesus would go into Egypt. The prophecy is that he would be called out of Egypt. But obviously he has to get into Egypt first. But God didn't leave him there. And of course, the prophecy is fulfilled not when they have the flight to Egypt, but when the angel of the Lord tells them now it's time to return and to come back to the land. Once again, Jesus personally is the accurate fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. There's another one. How about the star that would navigate them? And we call it a star. It was some sort of astronomical object. There is debate as to exactly what that astronomical phenomena was, but there was some sort of brilliant illuminated source uh, that was used by the Lord, and it would navigate the way towards Christ. And in Numbers chapter 24, 17, many commentators believe that this is a reference to the Messiah here. Interestingly enough, the prophet that is speaking here is Balaam, who is prophesying somewhat reluctant. He's the one that, that wanted to help out in cursing all of Israel so that he could receive uh, money uh, from the enemies of Israel. But he said, yeah, I can't go against what God tells me. I've got to speak whatever God tells me to speak. And so he does speak truth, and so he says in Numbers 24, 17, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Scepter being symbolic of his kingship. We'll talk about that in a future message. And shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. And so in Matthew, we find these wise men, these magi, Probably, many people believe, they were astronomers and understood and were constantly looking at the night sky. And this is why they saw this astronomical phenomena and understood uh, by also reading literature. Probably had many of the Old Testament scriptures and, and knew to come this direction as they were following it. Obviously, they initially fall uh, into Jerusalem. But it says, where is he when they show up to Herod? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Why are they there? Eventually we'll see that the, 
they follow that same astronomical phenomena where it comes to rest over Jesus there in Bethlehem. And so again, another prophecy again says Jesus is the incarnate Son of God as prophecy said. There would be a presentation of gifts to him. In Psalm 72.10, it says, The kings of Tarshish of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba, which is most likely Persia, Arabia, that region, more to the east of Israel. And Sheba shall offer what? Gifts. Well, did that happen for Jesus? It most certainly did. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, it says of the Magi, And when they were come into the house... And, of course, there was a period of time from when they were in the, in the stall, in the stable, in the manger, uh, before the Magi received there. So they had transferred into a home somewhere in Bethlehem. And so when the Magi were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Very priceless gifts, all three of these. And, of course, there was significance, uh, and that would be a whole other message as to how each of these referred to Christ, his kingship, uh, his priestly office, and also his eventual death as they used these different items in all of those different ways. So once again, here's a baby. These are unusual gifts for a baby to receive. Uh, but not unusual gifts for the Son of God who's become made flesh. Jesus, of course, checks the box once again. He would be worshipped by shepherds, Psalm 72 and verse 9. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. And we know in Luke 2.15, that very familiar passage of Scripture, that it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them, referring to the shepherds into heaven, that the shepherds said one to another, Let us go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made unknown unto us. And on from there, it talks about how they come in and they see uh, the babe and, the, and Mary, the mother, there and worship. Again, uh, the prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There would be many children killed and sorrow around this same time period. Jeremiah the weeping prophet said in Jeremiah 31, 15, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Ramah being that region where Herod orders the infanticide of all the children two years old and younger, which is fulfilled in Matthew 2, 16. Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, because they did not come back like he had told them to. You know, when you go find the child, come back so I can go worship him also. Well, they were warned by God not to do that, because God knew that Herod had ulterior motives. And so Herod realizes, wait, how am I going to now discover this child? He was exceeding wroth and sent forth, and he slew all the children that were in the coast of Bethlehem, and all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise man. He figured out this safe span of time to make sure that 
the, the one that he's looking for doesn't escape. What a notorious individual. What a heartless individual this king was. And of course, you can imagine all these mothers wondering, why in the world are they killing my child? And the weeping that must have, have gone on for months and years because a mother who is ripped uh, away from her child in such a, a ghastly fashion would never get over this and would never stop mourning her child. Of course, this once again confirms the accuracy that Jesus Christ. Some of these are more pinpointed, aren't they? There was only one point of time when that region of the world endured such sorrow like is described by the prophet of Jeremiah. How about the timing of Christ's birth and his life that would come before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that's there? And of course, we know in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, uh, the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. And, and, and Daniel uses this to figure out, oh, we're about to be released from Babylon and go back to the prom- back into our land, our homeland. But part of that in Daniel 9.26 went on to talk about from that point forward. And it says, and after threescore and two weeks, which is 62 years, after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. So there's that presence of Messiah. And then there's the, the, or from the time of, of Daniel's prophecy until he's cut off, a reference to his crucifixion. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know that historically happened with when Titus came in and he destroyed Jerusalem. The, the temple, of course, was burned as well. And the sanctuary, reference to the temple, and the end thereof shall be with a flood and unto the end of the war of desolations are determined. And, of course, as already mentioned, we know that um, Herod, was probably actually, uh, according to our calendars, probably died around 4 B.C. It's presumed, I know we count our calendars and think, you know, year zero is when Jesus was born, but in more accurate determinations uh, based on our chronology, Jesus was probably born somewhere around 6 to 4 A.D. based on our calendars, and that doesn't change the accuracy of our Bibles. That just means that our scientists were off in their calculations. And that his death probably occurred somewhere between 29 and 33 A.D. So before his death on the cross, Jesus had also told of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and therefore the confirming of Daniel's prophecy. And he actually does this in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 2. Let me go back one here. There it is. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? They have been bragging on the temple. Hey, come look at the temple, how great Herod's temple is that he built for us. And Jesus says, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall be left here one, not one stone on the other, they shall not be, that they shall not be thrown down. Uh, he's actually telling them, you're, you're so enamored with this building, someday this building, this temple, as glorious as it is, is going to be totally destroyed, which actually happens. So it's not only Daniel's prophecy, it's also Jesus' prophecy about what happens. And it did, in fact, happen, as we understand from several historians. How about the entire lineage, lastly, 
uh, this is our last prophecy to look at, the entire lineage would be confirmed through Scripture. We won't look at specific Scriptures, but let me just cite some references for you. We know that Jesus was from the line of Abraham, Genesis 12.3, Isaac, Genesis 17.21, and also 26.4, Jacob, Genesis 28.14, Judah, Genesis 49.8-12, Jesse, Isaiah 11.1, David, the son of Jesse, Isaiah 9.7, all those prophecies. You say, wow, that's, that's a very precise, continuing to narrow down. It's one thing to say, he's of the seed of Abraham, but it kept narrowing and narrowing it down till he had to come through a, a very small funnel. And we see that the entire fulfillment of Jesus' lineage, genealogies in both Matthew 1, but also Luke. In two different places, we're given the genealogies of Jesus Christ showing that, in fact, he is the fulfillment of the promise that the Messiah would come in this way. And so, folks, we ought to look at the, uh, the profound numer numerous number of scriptures here and say, Jesus fulfilled all of these. This is far from coincidental. No one else has ever been able to say that they do this. So then we ask the question, or we make the point, Jesus being the fulfillment of these prophecies must be crucial. And say it's not just a, a neat thing to say, wow, that's pretty incredible. So why is it crucial? Well, for one thing, if a prophet is ever wrong in his prediction, the Bible tells us we're supposed to disregard him and therefore his work, his ministry. So where do we find that? It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22. It says, when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, in other words, I'm a prophet under the name Jehovah, if the thing follow not, in other words, he said, this is going to happen, and then it doesn't come to pass. That is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. Obviously, the point is, is if it doesn't happen, then the Lord didn't really say it, even though the prophet said that the Lord said it. But the prophet hath spoken it, how? presumptuously, meaning of his own accord. He contrived it. He, he might seem very pious and may be very godly in so many different ways, but the real test is, does it come to pass? And if it doesn't, thou shalt not be afraid of him. In other words, don't give any credence, don't give any respect to the ministry of that prophet. Say, well, what if he gave 50 prophecies from the mouth of Jehovah and the 50th one? 49 were true, but one of them was wrong. According to this verse, what are we supposed to do? We negate that he is a legitimate prophet. Well, think about it this way. If Jesus was not the fulfillment of these prophecies, then what does that mean? It would mean that the Either the Old Testament writers were wrong in what they said about the coming of the Messiah, or the New Testament apostles and prophets who were all pointing to who? Jesus as being the fulfillment. Because that's what all the book of Acts and the epistles are about. Is that this is the one that we've been waiting for. He is the fulfillment. 
So we can no longer look at our Bibles the same way if we don't accept that Jesus Christ is in fact the incarnate Son of God in fulfillment of these prophecies. We would literally have to remove certain books of our Bible out of the canon of Scripture. Thankfully, we don't have to do that because Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. Secondly, prophecies were, in fact, uh, spiritual signs uh, of the credibility of an individual. They were miraculous signs, we would say. The woman of Cana, remember him talking, Jesus talking to her at the well? And as he talks to her, he's be able to uh, bring things out about her life, especially her linkages of marriages and now that she's not married. And, and it was this profound understanding that this was something more than just a very wise rabbi that she was talking to. And so as she goes running into town after what appears to be her conversion experience, she says, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did, and this is the key. She's convinced about who Jesus is. Is this not the who? The Christ. Is this not the Messiah? Is this not the anointed one? Is this not specifically the one that all those ten prophecies that we just looked at, that he is the fulfillment of these? In fact, we know that that was in fact the case. Well, in the very next chapter in the book of John, we find that there are people, not surprisingly, that are questioning the credibility of that statement of the woman. Maybe word had spread back into Judea, because she certainly was a great publicist, wasn't she? And so people are beginning to challenge this statement, and I love what Jesus does. In John 5, 39, he looks at him and he says, just do this, search the Scriptures. Just take your Old Testaments, which is exactly what we just did a few minutes ago, right? Search the Scriptures. Why? For in them you think you have eternal life. In other words, this is how you discern about life after death. And then he says this, And they are they which testify of who? Me. Jesus saying, I am. I'm telling you, I am the fulfillment of those prophecies. So as often has been stated, Jesus can't be just dismissed as some harmless Jewish teacher who may have gotten it wrong or maybe overly inflated his ego, we would have to say, based on the very clear statements that Jesus makes identifying himself, that we would have to say he was the worst false teacher ever unless he is truly the Messiah that the Old Testament Scriptures tell us about. You see, Jesus' credibility was grounded in the support of God's prophetic word. And how do you dismiss all that? All the prophecies of the Messiah had to be true of Jesus, including the ones regarding his incarnation. And by the way, there's at least 40 more prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah that are also fulfilled in Jesus in other ways. But here's the third ramification why the incarnation is so crucial for us. If Jesus is not the fulfillment of the Messiah uh, prophecies, then guess what? Everyone's in trouble. Everyone's in trouble. Under inspiration, in other words, under 
God's divine giving of truth, the Apostle Paul defends the factualness of Jesus' bodily resurrection. So I thought we were talking about the incarnation. Now we're talking, isn't that an Easter message, Pastor? Okay, you'll see how it ties together here. You see, because for the resurrection to work, Jesus had to have an actual physical what? Body, right? We understand that. And so we, we can go to what happens at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and walk on this earth to help us connect the dots back to the way he came into this world to begin with. So Paul is defending in 1 Corinthians 15 the factualness of Jesus' bodily resurrection. He points out the tragic consequences if, perchance, the resurrection were untrue. Because that's what's really being debated at that point in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. People are wondering, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And as you read the whole chapter, and it's a lengthy chapter, Paul gives one argument after another as to why it's irrefutable that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, rose from the dead literally, physically, bodily, three days as he said he would. But here is a key statement of why we tie it back to what we're talking about today. In verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is what? Vain, it's empty, it's pointless, it's worthless. And ye are yet in your what? Right. Because here's the way it works. The resurrection was the Father's way of affirming and saying, I accept what happened on the cross. Now, Jesus had to die on the cross. That's where the Lamb of God was slain. And that's where our sins were paid for. But the resurrection was the Father's way of saying, I accept that. The Father's wrath has been satisfied. And He raised up His Son as testament of that fact. Well, if that's true, then it ties all the way back, as already said, to the fact that the, Jesus Christ had to have that physical body. He had to also be a sinless man, which can only be true if He is also the Son of God. And so you have these blended things of in one entity, a full human being and the full deity of the Son of God in one individual, Jesus of Nazareth. You see, it's not just enough to assert that the resurrection happened, but that the one who raised up was the Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he goes on to say in that chapter, but now, and here's the glory, right? Because I left it hypothetical. We can't leave it hypothetical. If, if it were this way, we, we'd be miserable. We don't want to walk out of here miserable, do we? Praise God for verse 20. He says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. You know, we understand that there were other individuals that were raised physically, bodily from the dead. Lazarus being one of them in John chapter 11, right? So what does it mean when it says he's the first fruits? Well, this is talking from the timeless, eternal perspective of God. 
who makes all resurrection possible because of his son's resurrection. It sort of doesn't matter in the calendar of humanity where God chose to, in the fullness of time, insert different things. God's wisdom does that. But in other words, we also, as Paul goes on to explain, shall someday rise and meet the Lord in the air if we are the dead in Christ. And why is that possible? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. It all is balanced on the fulcrum of Jesus Christ. His resurrection, which all the way takes us back to the importance of His incarnation. Praise God for our confidence in the coming of Christ someday. You see how it ties together? You just got this huge thing all the way from the promise of Jesus in the book of Genesis to come, His coming, His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His coming again someday. See, that's what it's all about. You can't talk about one part of Jesus' life without understanding the entire tapestry of the beauty of what the Father has done for us. Folks, over the the next three Sundays, we're going to consider more things about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Next Lord's Day is the Lord wills. We'll talk about the salvific or the, the salvation significance of Jesus being born in the flesh. We'll talk about the priestly significance. And then lastly, we'll talk about the kingly importance of the incarnation of Christ. But as we go through this season, this Christmas season, Jesus Christ has been born. Let's enjoy the fullness of all what is doctrinally taught about that. Let's don't just reduce it down minimalistically to a simple little story about a cute baby in a manger. Let's think about the miraculousness of what the Father has done, but let's make sure we always take it to the next level and drive it home as the gospel does to our very own hearts personally and say, because Jesus Christ came, I am not of all men most miserable. We have hope. I have hope. I have confidence in my eternal life. And praise God we can say that, folks. Father in heaven, thank you for your words. We thank you, Father, that in your mercy, in your infinite wisdom, you did, in the fullness of time, send forth your Son, made of a woman, made under the law, that he might redeem us who are under the law. Thank you that we are not under the law. Thank you that we are under your grace. Thank you that we have not just uh, been made servants. You now call us friends. We are adopted. We are sons of God ourselves in our own right. We are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for all that is ours and all that will be ours because of Jesus Christ and his coming and his sacrifice in our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.